Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you are with us, or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. The future of talk radio. Buck Sexton. Team, welcome to the Buck Sexton Show. Thank you so much for being here with me. Great to have you. It is a uh, Freestyle Friday because it's Friday. So if you would like to call in, 844 844- 900-2825-844-900-B-U-C-K, which is my name. For those who are wondering, it is actually my middle name, and it is short for Buckman, but it is, in fact, my name and has been since I was a little kid. So there you go. Fun fact about Buck to start off the Friday show. Uh, now, let's get into, well, a, a lot of things to cover here. It's a Friday with a, with a ton of news, so instead of just getting to hang out and share whatever happens to pop into my brain. I've got some things to talk to you about, and then we'll do more of the, uh, then we'll do more of the whatever Buck feels like. That'll come probably later on in the show. First of all, you've got a major development in the Judge Roy Moore Senate race case. We'll get into that because I'm going to need, there's some explaining that needs to be done here. Uh, I need someone to explain some things to me because I've been, skeptical slash withholding judgment slash, you know, trying to be honest about this and fair minded about it. And and all of a sudden today. One of the judge more accusers is like, yeah, I mean, you know, that something a little different about the story that you you that you all should probably know. Make of that what you will. We will talk about it in some detail uh, coming up. You also, and this is going to be tough, but I, I, I know it's a Friday and sometimes I try to hold the heavier stuff for other parts of the week, but I saw this video I had not seen before of a shooting in Arizona and the police officer who was, he was, he was charged with second degree murder and he was found not guilty. And it is one of the most grotesque miscarriages of justice from what I can see of uh, of well, of any verdict in a long time, although I was gonna that even, you know, the Kate Steinle verdict. But uh, in in this case, you there's video. I mean, there's really no doubt about what happened at all. There's close up, clear video of what happens. That's going to be disturbing because I'm going to play the audio for you. But you need to know about this because uh, I when whenever cops should be defended, you know I defend them, and you know that I have law enforcement in my family and have worked in law enforcement myself and, and respect our uh, LEOs a tremendous amount. But as a part of that respect as well, when they step out of line or when they engage in just outright criminal activity and brutality, we got to call that out too. And whether it's the uh, Walter Scott, I believe, was the victim in South Carolina who was just shot in the back running away on video. Uh, that cop got 20 years, rightfully so. 
Uh, this case, though, cops walking away a uh, after a uh, this cop's walking away a free man. I think he's I, th- I read something about how he's leaving the U.S. He's moving because he realizes that everyone's like, this guy's a monster. And what he did was just he just executes a guy. And he's a father of two, by the way, a married man, executes a guy in the hallway. So that's going to be I just want to prepare you. We'll talk about that a little later, maybe this hour. But it's an important story, an important case. Uh, we also for those of you who are wondering, there, there's uh, I've seen the reports that the uh, Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia bought that $450 million Da Vinci. I haven't really done the Saudi deep dive yet on the consolidation of power and the stuff that's going on in Saudi Arabia, but you know, maybe we will, maybe we will get to that. Uh, if not today, next week, Palestinians are rioting. No surprise. I'll give you my sense of what that's all about. And then uh, two, uh, 228,000 jobs in November. There's some good news there on the economic front. And maybe that's a good place to switch into our, uh, to start off the show, my my thoughts of, of what's going on today that really, really seems to matter. And that is that the, the anti-Trump resistance, the hashtag resistance, has had a really, has had a really bad week. Uh, this is going to, this is a tough one for them. And there's a a story that just happened today that really caps a week or or finishes off a week that has that should make any of us feel like how can they claim to be credible at this point? How can they in any way really believe that they're not engaged in a a massive effort, a, a campaign, a concerted, a media collusion, if you will, to take down this president you have the uh Mueller investigation coming under a tremendous amount of scrutiny you had just last friday uh you had just last friday the abc news report by brian ross about dates being wrong right oh abc news comes out with the trump campaign or flynn tells trump to I'm sorry, Trump tells Flynn to reach out before the election to Russia. And we find out that's not true. And ABC's Brian Ross, who has also gotten some other very important stories very, very wrong in his career, uh, is suspended for a month because it's just an egregious error. The stock market tanks afterwards. It is reported because it seems to be evidence. This is why the new this is why it was a news story. Right? We always have to remember, why are they telling us this? Whenever you see a news story from the mainstream, always have in the back of your mind or maybe the front of your mind, why are they telling us this? That's where the primary bias happens. It's not in making up facts, although that happens too, as we know. It is in the decisions about which stories to cover and how to cover them. Because they need to maintain some baseline of credibility in order to, you know, they need to have the facts that are, verifiable straight so that then they can run with the sources and tell us stuff that we can't disprove but that's damaging to trump that's the game they play that's what they do but last week you had abc news brian ross with a total falsehood right the dates were wrong which means the entire story no longer really matters at all it's not even a story anymore because we already knew that that flynn had talked to russia and it was once the trump team is going to be the new national security team for what, the foreseeable future. Of course, they're going to reach out to their foreign counterparts. So there was a non-story, 
but it was reported as a bombshell because of a, an error. And I keep saying this to you. We need to stop giving them the benefit of the doubt with this. Oh, it's not fake news. It's a mistake. If they were making good faith errors, if the media were making good faith errors about the Trump administration and about Donald Trump himself, wouldn't they just once in a while get something wrong that looked kind of good for Trump? Wouldn't they run with it? Wouldn't they run with a source who was saying, you know, Trump's actually uh, doing great stuff and, and trying to get this bipartisan initiative going with Nancy and Chuck Schumer to, you know, fund this school choice program or something. And we find, oh, no, that's not true. That was a that was a fake. That was a fake story. That was fake news. The fake news is always anti-Trump. What does that tell us? It tells us there's a mindset. There's a widespread bias that is affecting the way those who have that bias tell us the news, the way they share the stories with us that are supposed to be the news cycle. Last week, ABC News, Brian Ross. Today, you have another one. This one, courtesy of CNN, which is really trying to position itself as the center of the hashtag resistance. And what we find is that they what they run with initially is that Donald Trump Jr. Received an email from somebody purporting to give them access to the WikiLeaks dump of documents that involve the DNC emails and the Podesta emails. You all remember that right before the election. And so the allegation that was contained in the story, and this was a this was a bombshell story. CNN was running with it and it was a big deal today. And the subtext or not even necessarily really the subtext, but the the purpose of the story is. See, Donald Trump Jr. engaged in in treason or conspiracy. Donald Trump Jr. betrayed his country. See, we've got him now. That's why it's a story. Remember, why are they telling us this? They are telling us that someone from WikiLeaks reached out to Donald Trump Jr. Because they want to build on this narrative that WikiLeaks, which is closely tied to the Russians and many people would say Russian intelligence, And so WikiLeaks was used as a cutout to contact the Trump campaign. And this was all part of the collusion effort. That's the storyline. And this is supposed to be evidence of that. Donald Trump Jr. getting first crack, if you will, at the WikiLeaks document dump of Podesta and Hillary's or the DNC's emails shows that there must have been something shady going on. Right. That was the story. Oh, but there's one problem. The email that was sent to Donald Trump Jr.'s account that I should also note, he didn't even respond to. So now this would be like saying, you know, we, we look through Buck Sexton's emails and, and he got an email from a Nigerian prince saying that, you know, they're, they're going to they're gonna be able to hack into this bank. They just need Buck's information and then, then they'll become millionaires together. And Buck didn't respond, but, you know, that other guy was trying to do criminal stuff and so it's really shady. It's not Donald Trump Jr.'s fault if someone sends him an email he doesn't respond to. You know, I mean, how, how much dishonesty are we supposed to take from the mainstream media before we say it's just we can't take we can't take it anymore. It's too much. The email that he didn't respond to was sent after WikiLeaks had already published the stuff online. So you have all these different journalists, and I was seeing this story unfold today, and this was really a microcosm of the whole resistance, Russia collusion lie in one day. 
You have all these journalists saying, oh, my gosh, look, WikiLeaks, WikiLeaks is an arm of Russian intelligence. And it's all this is the story, man. And they went to Trump first because this was supposed to help them win the election because there was a collusion. And all these different journalists are, oh, they're saying WikiLeaks is so bad. They trash it. Keep in mind, a lot of mainstream journalists, when The Guardian, left wing paper, The New York Times, left wing paper, were working with WikiLeaks to publish all kinds of information that's out there really damaging stuff. Uh, you know, th- these journalists thought WikiLeaks was great, was a journalistic outfit. You know, WikiLeaks was getting the information out there that, that people need to know. Now that it, they've got a different political motive, oh, WikiLeaks is is a hostile foreign intelligence service pretending to be a news organization. I mean, well, and it, it either is that or it's something else, but it can't be one thing one day and another thing the next day based on what the journalists want it to be. But the whole story is fake news. The whole story is fake news. The email that he didn't, the, the email that Donald Trump Jr. didn't respond to, so it didn't mean anything anyway, was sent after the documents were already published online for literally any person on the planet with an internet connection to read. So where's the collusion? How could they get something so wrong? Oh, well, CNN's saying there'll be no discipline because he went through editorial practices and standards. This was a leak. Somebody that sat through the eight hours of Donald Trump Jr. testimony leaked this information from that hearing, which is, by the way, that's illegal. It's a crime. Uh, Leaked the information. A member of Congress, I'm sure, via a surrogate on his or her staff, no doubt. But the information was wrong because they didn't check it because they didn't see the email. But CNN ran with it anyway. So CNN runs with a partisan rumor to damage the president's senior advisor slash son. And it's a complete fabrication. It's total nonsense. It is meaningless. But on Monday, CNN is going to put all of its journalists back on TV. You know, just the facts, sir. You know, just the facts. An apple is not a banana. Yeah, we know that. I'm not sure they know that. It's it's a, it's been a bad day. It's been a bad day, bad week for the fake news. I haven't even gotten into, like, what are we supposed to think about the Roy Moore thing? We'll get to that. By the way, what do you think about it? We'll play the audio for you. I want to know what you, 844-900-2825. Do you, are a lot of you feeling like you're more pro-Moore, more anti-Moore? What do you think now after they had a press conference? I watched the press conference. His team had a press conference this afternoon. But what happened to that inscription of the yearbook? A lot of you were telling me that you thought there was something funky going on there. Well, you know what? Turns out there was something funky going on. How funky? We'll discuss together after the break. Stay with me. Okay, team. So the election for Alabama's Senate is Tuesday, just days away. And here we go. Right before the election on ABC News, Tom Lamas asks Beverly Young Nelson about the inscription in the yearbook. Remember, the yearbook was held up as evidence that she knew Judge Moore and that uh, and her allegation, her accusation is that he uh, sexually uh, uh, molested her when she was 14. Or she was when she was 16. I'm sorry, 16. She was sexual assault in a car when she was 16. Pardon me. There's somebody else who says he that, that he um, molested her when she was 14. OK, so sexual assault in the car. That's the allegation. Here is what she said to, well, the whole country today. Beverly, he signed your yearbook. He did sign it. And you made some notes underneath. Yes. Okay. So I just would point out here 
that if this is the main piece of actual physical evidence, everything else that we know of is people, people, their recollections of things. This was 40 years ago and all the that that Gloria Allred could let this the lawyer here for this woman could let this get to this point. I should note is just wild malpractice, you know, because no matter what you think of. The the truth of these allegations overall or not, uh, if you're the lawyer for this woman, you've got to know that people are going to look at this and say, OK, so you're you're holding this up and you're saying that this is the this is what Judge Moore wrote, uh, Judge Moore wrote in your yearbook when you were in high school. But you've written some stuff in here that looks and it's made to look I mean, not made to look like, but it, it seems like it's a part of the overall message. So if that's completely innocuous, and some people would certainly argue that it is, you've got to come out and say that right away. You say, this is what Judge Moore wrote, but then I decided to write, you know, D.A. Old Hickory House 1977, which I think is what it says. I wrote that part in, but he signed my yearbook. He knew me. You can't expect people, after all this has come out, to hear this now and not at least question, why weren't we told this before? This is all about who you believe. There is really no evidence that I'm aware of, no physical evidence of anything here other than the yearbook. There are a lot of accusations, a lot of allegations. I know. I'm sorry. Tyrone's telling me that another person has a card. OK, but but every piece of evidence then is very important because it's going to get highly scrutinized. So if you're somebody who thinks that Judge Moore is getting. Um, a really, you know, J- Judge Moore is, this is all a, an assault on him. People are misremembering things. It's not fair or whatever. You're going to look at this and say, well, you got to come out of the, of the gate right away and be honest about what you have and what you're showing the American public. It also looks shady that Gloria Allred was like, no, we're not going to release this for people to look at the handwriting. It just looks bad. And if you're somebody who thinks that Judge Moore is, you know, was in fact engaged in this kind of reprehensible conduct, you believe all the women and everything that they've said, you still got to look at Gloria Allred and be like, what? What are you doing? I mean, I'm not a lawyer, but I would know that you got to be very clear about what this evidence is that you're presenting the American people to the public on, a, on a, an issue of such tremendous importance. So. If you have any thoughts on this, let me know. 844-900-2825. buck Does this change your mind one way or the other about anything that's going on for this very uh, heated Senate race for uh, Alabama? And I know we got a, a lot of Alabama listeners. So what do you, what's going on? By the way, if you're getting some interesting robocalls or something there, I'd want to know that, too. I'm, I have a feeling that the Alabama race is going to be very uh we know it'll be very interesting over the next few days all right we've got more on the frank's resignation so we're we're gonna have to talk about that one i think coming up here in a few minutes and uh also we will get into some action movie quote friday so uh that'll be maybe we'll give you the intro after the break but we'll talk about that as well because we're gonna be mixing it up here so uh back in a few minutes team stay right there team it is friday so i feel like we should uh we should open up the, the phones to Action Movie Quote Friday. 
action. The Marine Corps is like a day on the farm. Heavy meals and banquet. Formation of parade. I love the Corps. Movie. What's the matter? The CIA got you pushing too many pencils. Quote. Uh, you know what old Jack Burton always says at a time like this? Jack Burton. Me. Fridays. Thanks for the advice. Action movie quote Fridays. Now, if you don't want to talk about any of the political stuff going on, any of the shenanigans in the world of politics, uh, you can... See if you can beat the action movie quote master here. The ninth degree black belt in both Praying Mantis and Tiger Style, which uh, I can tell you I'm, I'm trained in many. I'm trained in many different styles. Uh, even even drunken man kung fu, which if you've ever seen is pretty cool. So, yes, you can call in with that. Or you can talk to me about what's going on in the world of politics because we're going to get into some more of that coming up here in just a second. Um, so, before I get into the trend, oh wait, hold on a second. We got somebody who wants to talk about uh, what's going on in Alabama and Judge Moore and all that. So let's do that. Tim in Ohio, what's up, Tim? Hello, Buck. Big fan. Love to see you on Fox News. Thank you, Those sir. Dirty so and sos. Anyway, <laughs> you're a good guy. You you always bring the truth. Appreciate it. And that's why I'm listening to you now. Um, i tell you what, what nobody in the media has brought out, at least on the, quote, good guy's side about Judge Moore, is that local witnesses, and there's so many, that have brought out details debunking or destroying these witnesses' stories. For instance, did you remember the New York Times story about Judge Moore the Creeper was hanging around at the mall, and they had to... Uh, um, what do, you, what, what do you say? They had to, they like uh, banned him from the mall. mall. I remember the story. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, the manager of the mall, who was there almost thirty years, said he never heard of such a thing. That's all BS. The woman making the claims that said she worked at Old Hickory. There are two other girls that came forward that said at that time she never worked there. We, they didn't even know her. They said, and we never seen Judge Moore come into the place during the times of the allegations, okay? They said that he drove her around back. They said, around back? The neighbor's yards came up to the building. There was no around back to drive to. Um, just so many things. The, the, the girl said that uh, she called from her bedroom. Even the mother admitted there was no phone in her bedroom. Um, detail after detail after detail, these things are just all out of range. Uh, another woman that, quote, accused, her stepson said, Mom's lying and I'm voting for Judge Moore. Why isn't the national media coming out with these things? Well, you know what I mean. You know how the, the media feels about Judge Moore. I should note that. Well, I don't mean mainstream media. I mean, and uh, I got it. Well, you. let me just let me just say that, that that you had you had Judge Moore. Well, hold on, hold on, hold on a second. You had Judge Moore's okay. team come out and and accuse Mitch McConnell of of being a source of this information or being or or you know being part go. of the effort to. There we go. Run these stories out against You're him, which right I got to say, that's You're right on. That's pretty. That's Not pretty bold, for... though. I don't. I don't know where they get that about Mitch McConnell necessarily, but they were saying it at the well, press conference. I'm telling you right now, and and I think you know where I'm coming from. That <clears throat> the Washington sewer does not want Judge Moore, a man of principles, and especially in this day and age, Christian quote values, to come to Washington. That is not acceptable, 
and they don't want him to be in on those Supreme Court nominations and other judgeships on the way down. All right, they Tim, I appreciate it, man. Now. I appreciate you calling in. We gotta, we're going to move uh, topics here, but uh, or at least move on to the, the next thing I wanted to talk to you all about. Uh, we'll see on Tuesday. Uh, look, I think Judge Moore's going to win, and I think that you're going to have – an endless stream of conservatives going on, or not conservatives necessarily, pe- people who are called conservatives going on uh, MSNBC and CNN to either say that the GOP is now a pedophile party or they're going to ask now, when, whenever something comes up, they're just going to be like, oh, so so, so, are you okay with, with the GOP support of a pedophile? I actually think the Democrats, regardless of whether you think Judge Moore is innocent or guilty of those uh, acts 40 years ago, right, those those. There's really, I should note, and this is an important distinction and Coulter made it this week. There are only two people, as I understand it, and I could be wrong. There's a lot of stuff that I got to read all the time. Only two people who have accused him of what would have been criminal activity. The rest of it is dating girls who are young, but it would not have been illegal activity. So they include all these other stories because it's, they or making a case that he's unseemly and also was dating younger girls. And so it's more believable that he would have done what they said he did. That's why they include those other stories. But we will, we will see. Um, they are, they're going to try to make a lot of political hay out of Moore's victory. I think I, I really, you know, that's, that's how I see it. Um, I, I think that uh, the establishment has, well, it's interesting, actually. I was going to say the establishment is, no, they're actually giving money to more again. The RNCs come back with money, right? So the establishment has not abandoned ship on this. They did, and then they're like, wait, wait, we're not actually abandoning ship. Is there any room? Any room on that ship? We're coming back. So that's happened. We will see. Uh, okay, but I, I need to get into two things here. The, the, the Franken aftermath and the Trent Franks resignation. The latest one is a Republican. You know, we're we're going to cover all the resignations here, all the the uh, I think I already said unseemly a few moments ago. But that's a good way to describe it. All the unseemly behavior uh, and allegations of unseemly behavior that that are rocking the Congress. Oh, I should note that there are already there are already rumors and they're just rumors at this point. But there are stories that are well, they're rumors, not yet stories. They're making the rounds in D.C. that there is about to be a remember right after Weinstein when it was just like, you know, one after another after another. All these different Hollywood types were getting caught up in the whole machinery of, um, uh, you know, the the pervert purge, whatever we're calling it. I People are saying that's about to happen with D.C. We've already seen a little bit. We have Conyers. Trent Franks and now, or Conor Franks and, and Franken. I know some of you still think Franken's not going to step down. I disagree, but, you know, you're not wrong until you're wrong, right? Meaning that until he steps down, he hasn't stepped down. So we'll have to see. Uh, but I still think, I think he's, I think he's got to. Um, a lot of people are kind of parroting my analysis from yesterday. I see now in the media about how this is the moment that the Democrats will claim to have seized the moral high ground. They will have cleaned up their past. They will have had a break from their Clinton apologizing and Teddy Kennedy apologia, uh, all that. Right. That's they're going to say now it's different. Now we really are the party of women and women must be believed and all that stuff. Uh, but there could be and this is the these are the whispers that I'm hearing and people have said it, but we, you know, we don't know yet. They think dozens, 
dozens of members of Congress are going to have allegations that come out. And, and there's these news organizations that are just making sure they've really got all their facts lined up. You don't want to pull what CNN did today and run a whole story that I should know they corrected it. It should have been a retraction. What CNN did today was not, oh, we just got a date wrong. Without the date, there is no story. Right? Without the email coming before the release, there's no, it's not, it's a complete non-story. It's like a story about how, you know, Donald Trump Jr. woke up that day and had two fried eggs and some bacon, which, by the way, sounds delicious. So, there's that. Um, but Franken's accuser, Stephanie Kemplin, who's one of the people that came forward saying that the still senator, but soon to be former senator, maybe, groped her. Uh, she was not happy with his speech yesterday. I'm so sad and appalled at his lack of response and um, him owning up to what he did. I feel that he just keeps he just keeps passing the buck and making it out to be something uh, that we we took his behavior the wrong way or uh, we misconstrued something or that we're just we've just flat out lied about what happened to us. So she's saying that he's he's full of it. He was full of it with this whole I'm stepping down speech yesterday. And, you know, I, I heard him and I, I watched it live as he was giving that press conference. And I had I had a very similar reaction to he's not he's not taking responsibility. He's not saying, oh, yeah, you know, I'm I've transgressed and I'm really bad. He was saying, all right, you know, you got me now because Democrats are all pushing for me to step down. And, you know, this is just I'm I'm a. He was basically saying he's collateral damage. That was what he was saying. Um, and that he's going to you know, do all that he can to try and fight for women and everything else. But he's saying, you know, I'm a uh, I'm somebody that should not have had to step down. Um, I'm going to have to go into a break here because I'm struggling so hard with it with a sneeze that keeps coming and going. <laughs> I'm sorry to say it's live radio, everybody. It happens. I'm literally, I'm like. Uh, it was there and then it was gone. So I'm going to try to sneeze in this break. I'm going to come back and talk to you about what's going on with Trent Franks. 844-900-2825, 844-900-BUCK. Um, I'll be right back. All right, so we've got this uh, story that we will get into here in just a second about uh, Trent Franks stepping down. We have some details from it. Uh, yesterday I mentioned he was stepping down. But first, Kellen in Nebraska listening on the iHeart app. Hey, Kellen, what's up? Hey, how's it going? I'm good. Thanks for calling in. Uh, yeah, uh, I was curious if you knew anything more about uh, that uh, Ralph Shorty guy from uh, he's a senator from Oklahoma. I I got I've never I don't know I don't know anything about him. I'm sorry to say. Oh really? Yeah, it's crazy. Uh, I was uh, I was just walking to the. So he's a he's a state speech, senator. Yeah, I guess. Okay. I, I've never heard of him. To be honest, I don't know Oklahoma senators. And yeah, he's—I guess he got caught in a hotel room with an underage boy, like smoking weed. And I guess he was supposed to—he was supposedly gonna be doing some things with him. I—I I don't know the story, but uh, I mean, it sounds like the guy needs to go to prison for a long time. Yeah, I guess it must have just happened recently or something. I didn't—I've only seen 
And they have the actual police footage, and it's a body cam, and it's a video of. Yeah, the Tyrone is nodding at everything you're saying. So I mean, it sounds like your facts are, are all are all correct. I, I just I don't know the story. I missed that story, so I'll have to go check it out. Is there some? Is there yeah, a point you wanted to make about it, or something beyond just letting me know that this happened? Yeah, it's kind of letting you know. I didn't know if you knew or because everyone's talking. There's a ton of. I guess there's a bunch of scandals that are coming out. And this guy's a Republican, too, and most of them have been Democrats, and this guy's... Yeah. Well, we're about to talk about another one, Trent Franks. Uh, thank you for calling in, Kellen. So here's what happened with Trent Franks. Yesterday it was reported that he was stepping down, and it was like he's stepping down, and we hadn't yet seen any of the allegations, or any, we didn't know any details about it. We just knew that he was stepping down. And then it started to come out that it had something to do with being a... with him wanting a female on his staff to be a surrogate for him. And that, and I think I saw a little bit of back and forth on this on, on social media. Yeah. I've got Miss Molly's always trying to take social media out of my hands. Cause I'm always like, Oh, what are, what are the people saying? And she's right. I need to step out of the matrix. It's very important. But I saw some stuff on it about how, uh, you know, that there was this back and forth going on. But then it came out that he was, uh, that Franks may have uh, also made unwanted advances towards female staffers, maybe retaliated against one of them. And, and with the whole surrogacy thing, that uh, he, wanted, he wanted a female staffer to be a surrogate for him, but he wanted to do it the old-fashioned way, which, you know, you all know what that means. So that's a that's a thing that I don't know. That's a problem. Um, I don't know why he would think that that would be a thing you could talk to somebody about in an office environment. Like, hey, can would you have? Would you would you carry my child? And oh, could we make the child the old the old fact? I mean, instead of doing an in vitro and fertilization or something like. You know, it was going to be the old, I, don't know, I keep running the, the old fashioned, I don't know what else to say. Um, that's, that's a problem. Uh, that's not, that's not going to work out well. I also saw that he was offering $5 million to somebody on, again, on, was this a staff? Do we know if it was a staffer? Tyrone, what, help me with some of the details here. Was this? Allegedly, because they're still coming out. One of the, one of the $5 million op- offers was to a staffer. Another one was sort of like, Hey, if you want to keep working here, this is what's going to happen. That's what the word is. So he was particularly nice to one and not so nice to the other one. I mean, that's that's, that's that an nice. enormous disparity, right? I, I get like you you you're going to carry you know you're going to carry my child. Putting aside the and we're also going to like make the baby, uh, but you're going to carry my child, or else your career is in trouble, or your perfect you know your ability to pay your bills is in trouble. Versus, I'm going to give you five million dollars. But I got to say. That's that's a lot of money, I think, for a surrogate. Is it? I don't I don't know how this stuff works. I, I actually don't know much about surrogacy at I've all. Heard, I've heard that five million dollars is, is still a lot, but surrogates do get paid a lot. But here's the issue: in this in the scenario that he laid out, that woman's not a surrogate at all. Yeah, that's just somebody else having your baby, right? Like the wife, right? Because usually surrogacy would be him and his wife in vitro, and then there's the implantation of the embryo right. in a third party who carries the baby, right? Yeah, okay, right. I, I know about this. And stuff. And usually, right. what happens is you know you cover their rent or mortgage, and 
health care and you take care of them during that time because they would have the option to keep the baby. Unfortunately, that happens sometimes. So you want to keep that person happy. So you pay them a lot of money so that at the end they complete the deal and sign the baby off. In this particular case, there would be no signing off because his wife he would was just saying to no- staffers, would you have my baby? Yes, and if she works for him, if she was to become pregnant, she would have to be at work every day with him. Oh, 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 okay. All right, thank you, Tyrone. Um, so, yeah, it sounds like it was, uh, he was stepping down is not surprising under the circumstances, and uh, he's already stepped down. Unlike some of the other stuff we've talked about here, this is not a, you know, maybe he will, maybe he won't. Uh, no, 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 he, he is, he's out. He and he went out even faster than was initially anticipated. I mean, he is out, out, out. So there is that. I just would. would I wanted. This is a. So anyway, I'm trying to update you on the sexual harassment stuff, and that's how we're talking about this. But just a quick thing before we go to break here. I see CNN investigates the the mystery of Michael Flynn. That's on tonight on CNN. I'm not giving it a plug. I'm just pointing out. You know, they've got the former DNI James Clapper there. These are the kind of people that are weighing in on the whole Russia collusion situation. If there was, don't you think the DNI, the Director of National Intelligence, would would have something to say? Could tell us what he saw that makes him think the collusion is so obvious? Or anyway, I, I just I find that whole thing so frustrating. Uh, we got uh, Kim Strassel from the Wall Street Journal is going to be joining us in a few minutes to talk about how Congress is not getting straight answers from the FBI on this whole probe. We will also talk about the very troubling uh, shooting in the next hour that happened, well, a while ago in Arizona, but the guy who, the police officer, who I think was guilty of murder, he was found not guilty by a jury of his peers. Uh, mind-boggling. We'll talk about that coming up. Stay with me. It has been a tough week for the Mueller probe, everyone. There are some very valid questions that are being asked now about possible bias from senior FBI officials involved with the Russia collusion investigation. And there's also some reason to believe that the FBI has not been particularly forthcoming when it involves information that will not make them look good. And the Congress is asking some questions. Kim Strassel is on the case, and she is with us now. She is the author of The Intimidation Game, How the Left is Silencing Free Speech. She's a columnist at The Wall Street Journal. Her latest piece is Obstruction of Congress. Mueller, the Justice Department, and the FBI are not helping the lawmakers probe. Kim, great to have you back. It is great to be here, Buck. All right, so uh, Mueller, I mean, I know you're always calling balls and strikes on the Mueller investigation as it goes along. You don't say it's all bad. You don't say it's all good. This week is a tough one for Mueller and his crew, I think. Yeah, it is, uh, for a couple of reasons. I mean, first of all, it comes out that this Peter Strzok individual, the man who is a FBI agent, he was a, a lead on the Hillary Clinton email case, uh, had a senior role in the counterintelligence probe uh, into Russia. Uh, turns out he was kicked off the Mueller team all the way back this summer because of the existence of all of these texts with a mistress, which appeared to show an anti-Trump bias and a pro-Hillary bias. And I think that's bad enough, except for what we all find out is that, of course, this all happened in August. And despite the fact that there have been House intelligence subpoenas that would have unearthed these texts, uh, despite the fact that Mr. Mueller knows that uh, the House is very interested in this question of whether or not there was any chicanery at the FBI, 
Uh, he did not inform any congressional investigators about this, and the Department of Justice uh, didn't abide by the subpoenas, thereby keeping all of this quiet. It seems to me like the FBI is well aware, Kim, of what the stakes are here uh, with this whole investigation, everything surrounding Russia, collusion, and, and the accusations against the, the Trump campaign, as well as the Trump administration once in office. And with that in mind, full transparency would seem to be an, an absolute necessity. And anything short of that, I think, should raise a lot of eyebrows. Well, it should. And, and, you know, that's not the only revelation that we got this week. There's another one. You know, up until now, we only knew that it was the FBI that had been in contact with Christopher Steele, uh, the British ex-spook who put together this infamous dossier of allegations against Trump. Um, we're trying to obviously find out to what extent that what role that dossier played in the FBI's investigation, whether it in fact kicked the entire thing off. But now we find out that the Justice Department had a senior official that was also in contact with Mr. Steele, also in contact with Fusion GPS, this oppo research firm, and that the Justice Department did not inform Congress of that, despite the fact that Congress said we want to know who was talking to the guy? We want you to make them available to us, and we want to have any documents, and they, they did not respond to that. And there is the possibility of a contempt resolution, right? I mean, Congress is taking this, at least the Republicans in Congress are taking this very seriously. And, and it does remind me, Kim, that all along I've been saying, I don't know why a special prosecutor here has been put aside whether someone believes that there was there was reason for it to look into the you know to look into the election and everything else but just from a pure process point of view you have multiple congressional investigations going on into this so why, why do we have to have a special prosecutor people people keep saying oh look at benghazi and that was so politicized i say well there was no special prosecutor they just let congress do the investigating well, this was the biggest mistake that Congress made, the Republicans made in Congress, is ever agreeing to and going along with the idea of a special prosecutor. Um, and, and we're seeing the consequences of it now because what it's done is, look, it's already outrageous. So you know this. We have a separation of powers, and Congress has an oversight ability. And if you actually watched Christopher Ray, the FBI director yesterday, he just looked at these guys. He was so dismissive and said, I don't have to hand anything over to you because it's classified. Well, <laughs> you know, that's essentially saying we, the FBI, could do any misdeed we wanted in the world. And if Congress wanted to look into it, we'll just tell you it's classified and you can't get a hold of the documents. See, that's not how it works. The Judiciary Committee has primary oversight capacity over the FBI. And, of course, they can see classified I have to say that that's kind of funny. I missed that part of the hearing. But i got to tell you, Kim, that I feel like in my first month at the CIA, I was told numerous times, do not ever tell a member of congressional oversight, oh, sorry, you can't see that. <laughs> like, yeah, that was very no, straightforward. No, no, they can see it. They're the oversight <laughs> committee. Exactly. No, it was incredible. He just looked at him for like, and, and they said, are you, are you joking? He goes, no, you know, the things I look at, every, the FISA court warrants that I sign off on, they say classified on the front. 
Um, and Bob Goodlatte, who was the, was the head of the Judiciary Committee, felt the need to immediately interject and sharply inform Mr. Ray uh, that uh, his committee was a committee of oversight of the FBI and that he would indeed turn over anything that Congress wanted them to turn over. But for the moment, they're not. They're stonewalling. And the special prosecutor has given them an additional excuse for why they can continue to stonewall, even if it's not a legitimate one. And what we need is Congress to enforce that contempt proceeding and let people know that they are serious. We're speaking to Kim Strassel, author of The Intimidation Game and a Wall Street Journal columnist. And Kim, about your very excellent book, The Intimidation Game, I remember talking to you when it came out, and congrats on all the success that it has had. And one of the issues you deal with in the book is the John Doe investigations. I feel I feel like because there was so much happening this week, it was almost entirely lost in the shuffle. But there were some very did you see this 88 page report or or some of the uh, excerpts of it from the John Doe investigations that's come out? Because the prosecutors involved in the John Doe investigations were somehow keeping private correspondence, including private medical correspondence between people who were vague targets of the investigation in a folder called Opposition Research. Yeah, this is a vindication for you, me, the only people, like the very few handful of people out there who took this seriously back when it happened. What happened in Wisconsin with John Doe was an incredible abuse of power. And we should all feel very gratified that the Wisconsin Attorney General took it seriously. He put together a, a, this as a mind-boggling report, um, and everyone should read it, all 88 pages in its entirety, to get a sense of how government can abuse its power when it's left to get on. And in this case, under the ruse of a bogus campaign finance investigation, but they were riffling through thousands upon thousands of emails. They were actually monitoring a Bible study group. Um, keeping things in folders called opposition research. They ended up having the, the emails and correspondence of the woman who is now running for the Senate uh, in Wisconsin um, and various other just... Ed, Ed Gillespie things. had correspondence that, that was pulled into this. I mean, if you emailed anybody who worked in politics or, or was tangentially involved with Scott Walker, your emails got pulled into this probe. Senator Ron Johnson's emails were there um, because on the sides of those from the people he had corresponded with, obviously. But they were caught up in this as well, too. All of this kept in these boxes. And this was a district attorney's office and then a special prosecutor and then also this very nefarious organization, uh, which no longer exists in that form, called the Government Accountability Board. And if that doesn't send shivers down your spine, it absolutely should. But these guys, this cabal, got together. They were on a, an, a, an agenda against state Republicans, um, and they were left alone to do this for about you know several years. And I think the best news out of this is that the AG has actually recommended contempt proceedings against many of them, which means maybe there might finally be some accountability. I can't help, Kim, but draw some parallel between what happened in Wisconsin. And now that we've actually gotten access to the documents, it, it could not be more clear. There were a bunch of Democrat partisan prosecutors who figured out that they could engage in a, politici- a political witch hunt, politicization of their offices, do so in secret, and really perhaps turn the tide of what was going on in Wisconsin at the time with Scott Walker and the union fights and everything else. I can't help but connect that to what's 
happening right now with Mueller and the special prosecutor with Trump. It feels like it's just a bigger version of it. It's hard not to. And I look, I think the fact that the Justice Department, the FBI are working so hard to make sure that people don't see the documents that have been requested. That's suspicious all on its own. And, I mean, look, we, we had, um, you know, Comey at one point, I think, said on the record that this dossier had been used in some important role in terms of their investigation. Now they're backtracking from it because the news is broken that, of course, it was commissioned by the Clinton campaign and the Democratic National Committee, um, and that it, it also reads like something out of the National Enquirer. But if that was the basis of the counterintelligence probe that has since been launched and spiraled, into the craziness we have now, uh, if it was the basis upon which people, American citizens, were wiretapped, was the reason that was given for the FBI to spy on a political campaign while it was actually going, as Jim Jordan said at the hearing yesterday, that would be about as bad as it can get. Now, we don't know if that's the case, but the fact that nobody wants to cough up these documents surely makes me suspicious. Kim Strassel is author of The Intimidation Game. You guys can all get it on Amazon.com, and I highly recommend you do. Also check out her columns at The Wall Street Journal. Kim, always great to have you. Have a fantastic weekend. Thanks, Buck. All right, team, we're going to roll into a break here. 844-900-2825. Action movie quote Friday in effect. Stay with me. Take some calls, team. Steve is with us now from uh, Massachusetts on WHYN. Hey, Steve. Hey, Buck. How you doing? I'm good. Thanks for your call, man. I, I'm, I haven't been up to Mass in a while, but, you know, I went to school up there for four years. Nice place. Yeah. Um, well, I, 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 I was listening to, listening to some of your analysis about the FBI and the Mueller probe, and then it dawned on me that, that um, that's what you worked at uh, doing for a living before. No, I worked um, at the CIA, know, not the FBI, but yeah. But, but, you, but you have a, a, a pretty good understanding of how intelligence agencies work and what they're supposed to do yes. and what the borders are. True. But, but but one of the things that strikes me about this Mueller, this whole Mueller investigation and FBI probe, I mean, up until this point, we've been kind of like zeroing in on the, the various crimes and misdeeds of various people in the FBI. But with the naming of names and starting to put together a timeline, um, we're basically piecing together a plot. We're actually basing, uh, we're actually starting to form a command structure for what I believe is a shadow government. Um, and it, it, before, I mean, it interfered with the election, it looks like, before Trump. But after Trump was a sitting president, this is a coup. This is actually a shadow government. I mean, regardless of how successful it is, it's, it's a coup to undermine his effectiveness. And um, I, 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 this just dawned on me last night, and I was like, uh, I, I, I just couldn't contain myself. I had to Well, well usually a shadow, just, just a few things here, Steve, usually a shadow government is a government that is, uh, they have versions of the existing government. So I'm trying to think of a way to say this, but a shadow government would be that, like, we found out that uh, somebody was, was, ready to, to, was ready to come in and play the role of president, right? Or somebody was going to take over. Um, you have shadow ministers in some countries where there's a, an insurgency like Afghanistan where they will be trying to engage in the functions of the actual government, and that's what we call shadow governance. But w- your point, I mean, you're, you're talking about essentially a deep state here, right? Meaning that there are people within the right, government. Right. I mean, I, I mean th- th- this may be a, a basically a minor plot, but, but it's still a plot. 
there's a, what I'm trying to get at is there's a chain of command here, and we need to find out exactly what this chain of command was. Um, it, I mean, the, the timeline about dropping off the dossier on, uh, you know, bringing up Stroh and, uh, and Weissman. Um, I mean, th- this was far too well orchestrated to, to not have a, some sort of a central command or a plan. You know what I mean? These weren't just random actions by a bunch of individuals. Uh, no, they weren't random. That's for sure. Um, there's definitely, and there's a lot of reason. To, there's legitimate reason to be very concerned here about the different individuals. I'm actually going to bring you up to speed on the latest one in just a moment here, Steve. So thanks for listening up in Massachusetts. I appreciate it. To Steve's point about these people who are, uh, you know, coming out of the woodwork right now that we've got these problems. Here's this is a piece up on Conservative Review. Let me walk you through some of this. It is becoming, oh, before I do this, I just know we're going to talk about that shooting and the verdict. Um, and I, I didn't realize this, the, the Walter Scott ver, uh, sentencing just happened a few days ago. So it's very interesting that you have the Walter Scott sens- sentencing happening. And then within two days, a verdict in, a, in another police brutality case that's just, just jaw-droppingly awful. I mean, one of the most... Horrific videos of police violence I have ever seen right up there with the uh, uh, the video I just mentioned in South Carolina. But we'll, we'll get into that in just a moment. We'll come into that after the uh, after the break. So, OK, conservative view and the piece here is on another questionable individual tied into the Mueller probe. Here's what it says. Uh it is becoming increasingly clear that special counsel Robert Mueller's probe into the alleged collusion between the Trump campaign and Russia in the 2016 election may be seriously compromised by Democratic partisans involved in the investigation. The latest revelation involves Mueller's right-hand man, Aaron Zebley. Zebley previously served as Mueller's chief of staff at the FBI and as a senior counselor in the National Security Division at the Department of Justice. Uh, Fox News' Tucker Carlson reported Thursday night that in 2015, Zebley was an attorney for Justin Cooper, the IT staffer who set up Hillary Clinton's private email server and the aide who destroyed Clinton's old BlackBerry phones with a hammer. Fox News obtained documents showing that Zebley, as Cooper's acting attorney, stonewalled Senate investigators as the investigators wanted to question Cooper regarding Hillary Clinton's mishandling of classified information. Uh, are, are we are we going to be coincidence theorists here? Are we really going to believe that this is just all, all these different members of Mueller's probe? You know, you're not finding out that any of them were not even that this would be a problem, but, you know, they're running around posting photos on social media wearing, you know, MAGA hats and MAGA shirts. You're not finding that out. I like to look at patterns, my friends. I like to look at trends. Draw analysis from that where we can. As I said at the start of the show, they never get stories. There's no fake news that's pro-Trump. How is that the case? Right? There's, there's no fake news from news outlets that are great for Trump. And then we're like, oh, actually, sorry, I made a mistake there. Or at least not from CNN, MSNBC, ABC, NBC, CBS, New York Times, Washington Post. When was the last time they had to retract a, retract a story that, you know, was good for Trump. But now we've got more and more people tied into Mueller that are, we have reason to believe, are pro-Hillary and anti-Trump. Now, 
We had Andy McCarthy on yesterday. He was saying, look, that doesn't mean just people are going to have opinions. I say it about journalists, and it's true about government bureaucrats, too. They're allowed to have opinions. They're allowed to have political beliefs. Forget allowed. They do. There's nothing wrong with that, per se. The problem is when you've already seen evidence of bias, and then working working back from that, you have more uh, circumstantial evidence or just more more to pile on top of that makes you think that there is a very clear anti-Trump effort underway at the top of the FBI and the DOJ. So I would note that that is that it is troubling more and more, more and more. Uh, also, they're saying that. Uh, The FBI warned Hope Hicks, the White House communications director, during the campaign about Russia reaching out to her. Okay. So what? I I don't even know how that's a news story. So she testifies for like two days in front of Mueller's whole team. And it came out that the FBI told her that the Russians would be reaching out to try to make contact. All right. She didn't do anything. So why is this a news story? She didn't contact them. So the FBI said something to her, and now we're being told the FBI said something to her, and nothing happened. I don't understand. How many of these stories do we have to see? that They're just so desperate to tell their audience more about this narrative because clearly either the journalists have all lost their minds or their, their audiences at CNN and elsewhere, this is just all they want to see. It's just more Russia collusion, Russia collusion. You know? Hey, you know, we've got more, more evidence today that Mueller was talking to people about things that don't matter. It's just crazy. That police officer, Philip Brailsford, responded to a call at a La Quinta Inn and Suites in Mesa, Arizona. Um, He showed up after there had been reports that somebody had seen someone pointing a firearm out a window. Officer Brailsford, Brailsford was uh, was equipped with a body camera. Uh, Philip Brailsford, he had a body camera and he the body camera was on and functioning during the incident. He came upon two people in the hallway of La Quinta Inn and Suites and began shouting orders to them. Now, these are just two people. It was a man and a woman. He's shouting orders at them. The man is, and you will, you, I'm going to play the audio for you here of some of the exchange. The man has posed no threat. The man is unarmed, although the officer at the time did not necessarily know that. Uh, the man gets down, lies down on the ground, and then in one of the most appalling displays of uh, police abuse of power and then abuse of force I've ever seen or heard of. The officers shouting it at, at, at them, uh, two officers, I believe, in the hallway. One of them was the, was the he, had an, he had an AR-15 on them, so he had a rifle, the officer, and he's shouting at the, uh, the young man, Shaver is his name, who is on the ground, lying down on the ground already. And the police officer, Brailsford, is telling him to, to like cross his legs, you know, take, you know, kneel, cross your legs, keep your legs crossed while you crawl toward me. 
it's it's crazy when you hear the audio. I've never seen anything like this in my life. And I've seen a lot of videos of arrests, and I've worked with cops, and I, I get it, right? He's lying face down on the ground. His hands are up. He is face down on the ground. And the officer's telling him now to get to your knees, but keep your feet crossed. So the, the, the guy who is terrified, he's got an, an AR pointed at him in the hallway. He's done nothing wrong. Tries to get to his knees, but his feet, because I think the guy had, had a, a couple of drinks, his feet came uncrossed. The officer starts yelling, if you do that again, we're going to shoot you. And the guy is screaming, please don't shoot me. I'm, I'm just in a, in a hotel room hallway. I didn't do anything. And you can tell from the officer's tone, he's menacing and vicious. And it is it would have been absolutely uh, standard procedure for once the guy's lying down on the ground, you can approach and and have the other officer put cuffs on him. You don't need to have him crawl toward you. It's not an active shooter situation. And this guy didn't do anything. I mean, as I was saying, uh, or, or I was writing about this earlier today, if an officer can do this, what else can an officer say? Moonwalk toward me? Oh, no, that's not a moonwalk. Bang, bang, bang. You're dead. Because that's kind of what this police officer did. And those of you listening to the show, you know, I'm not, I'm, I am fair to the police. And I think in a, in a life or death situation with law enforcement, their, their honest discretion should get a lot of deference, right? Meaning if they really do believe their life's in danger, you know, we, we can't leave our cops out to dry. But this video is clear. It is up close. I know I can only play the audio of it for you. This cop is not in danger. His commands are unreasonable. His tone is unnecessarily aggressive and threatening towards this individual in the hallway. And he shot him five times at, you know, it couldn't have been a range more than 10 feet. This audio is disturbing. I want to tell you that before we play it. So, you know, I know it's a Friday and, and I get it, right? If you don't want to hear this part of it, I understand. But I can't talk about this without playing something. The full video was released after this trial. Play the audio, please, Tyrone. Push yourself up to a kneeling position. I said, keep your legs crossed. I'm sorry. I didn't say this in conversation. Push your hands up in the air. You do that again, we're shooting you. Do you understand? Do not shoot me. Then listen to my instructions. I'm trying to do what you Don't talk. Listen. Hands straight up in the air. Do not put your hands down for any reason. You think you're going to fall, you better fall on your face. Your hands go back in the small of your back or down. We are going to shoot you. Do you understand me? Yes, sir. Crawl towards me. Crawl towards me. Yes, sir. Don't talk. I don't know how anybody could see that video and not. And I know you just heard it. But I don't know how you could hear that, how you could see it, and not think that that police officer deserves to spend the rest of his life in prison. If you if you can't balance yourself, fall forward on your face. Why is he telling him to, knee, to kneel but keep your legs crossed? I, look, I'm completely sober right now, and and I'm not under threat of imminent deadly force from a police officer who's a maniac. And I don't know if I could do the things that this officer is screaming at him to do with a gun pointed at him. Keep your legs crossed. Get to a kneel. If you're going to fall, fall to your face, meaning you can't use your hands to brace yourself. That's just not, this is just not 
realistic, not normal, not acceptable. The the, the uh, prosecutors here made the right move in terms of the charge. The charge was second degree murder. Absolutely. There was also an involuntary manslaughter charge or, or I'm sorry, voluntary manslaughter charge. That that was a lesser charge. The jury came back with nothing. And the Policemen's Association around in Arizona says, yeah, the justice was done. Sorry, it was not done. This is wrong. This was very wrong. Now, uh, this case has not gotten very much attention. I will tell you, I didn't even know about this case until the verdict came down today. And I don't want to make this about the politics of the victim versus the police and everything else in terms of identity groups and demographics, whatever, because I don't want police violence against anybody who doesn't deserve it. And I know you feel the same way. In this in this instance, the individual was a, a, a Caucasian male, married, father of two. Those two kids now grow up without a dad because this cop is this cop is scum. That was a scum move. That wasn't a mistake. It wasn't I'm under pressure and made the wrong move. That cop, that cop was wrong. He crossed the line. And he he killed somebody. It was an execution in that hallway. It reminds me in that regard in terms of the clarity of the event to the Walter Scott shooting in South Carolina, which just a couple of days ago, uh, former police officer Slager, I believe Michael Slager, was handed a 20-year sentence. And those, and, and those prosecutors actually wanted life in prison. They came back, the judge came back with 20 years, which was within the guidelines for, but he's a murderer and he's going to, he's going to prison for murder. As he should, just because you're a cop doesn't mean you get to murder people, right? We all understand this. We all know this. In that case, there was much more attention on it because, I mean, there's a video of it, but also you had an African-American who was running away from a police officer who was just, the video speaks for itself. I mean, he was executed in cold blood. There was just no reasonable, justifiable use of force there whatsoever. Um, but, you know, it's important if we're going to, if as conservatives, like as Americans, as patriots, doesn't matter. But if we're going to stand by the police when they're being unfairly maligned, as I have done countless times, when they're being called, uh, you know, racist, murdering cops, and when there are the, when there are protests that are unfair, or when there's uh, people that are held up as being martyrs, and and you know, lies are being told about individuals who are shot in some of these cases because it serves a political agenda. We've also got to look at the other cases that do happen and keep an eye on what's going on here. I mean, you know, the Walter Scott case was murder by, was a murder by police. And this was murder by police. And I feel terrible for this uh for this victim's family. I can't imagine how anybody um who's even trying to be the least bit objective could see this and not think that uh Daniel Shaver was executed in the, in the hallway for nothing. And I, I know I've look, I've seen a lot of videos of arrests. I have never before seen a, a situation where someone was saying, do these complicated physical movements. And if you do them wrong, I'm going to kill you, which is what he says. That's what that police officer says. And if you watch the video, it makes it even worse. I don't have much of a, I don't have much of a takeaway from this other than I want you to be aware of the case. I think it's it is it is noteworthy that the media cares much less about this as a case because it doesn't fit into a narrative of racial injustice. 
there was actually a case of racial injustice, police violence that did get some measure of justice in the sense that a, 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 an officer who uh, was guilty of murder was found guilty is getting a 20 year sentence. I mean, that's you know, 20 years is what you get for murder. That's a pretty, uh, pretty well within the, the range and the guidelines. But here with with Daniel Shaver, I I really wish I could get a member of that jury to to call into the show and try to explain to me because it wasn't a hung jury. They they said not guilty on all on all counts. I want to know how uh, what the thinking is there. How did uh, how did a a jury of Shaver's peers get convinced that a police officer can make unreasonable and unnecessarily aggressive demands and then in that and to say that he was in reasonable fear of his life is is just complete nonsense. And just just lit him up there in the hallway, just murdered him, and with no consequences. And very little media coverage of this. It's heartbreaking. It really is. And uh, 99.9% of cops out there are doing a, a critical job and doing a great job of it. And they are owed our thanks, our gratitude, and our respect. But there's a point zero 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 one percent that are bad. And they kill people. It happens. And we should not... Ignore it. We should not forget about it quickly. We should remember that this this was a real injustice today. And if you haven't seen that video, you should you should watch it. I I don't I don't know how we can you know right now in this country how good can we feel about the justice system with the Kate Steinle verdict and then this. It's been a bad look. It's been a bad week for the FBI. It's been a bad week for the Justice Department or the justice system. I mean, the Steinle verdict is inexplicable to me, and this verdict. Honestly, even even more so. It's hard to believe. All right. Uh, if you have thoughts on this, give me a ring. We'll be back. We'll take your call. Stay with me. Welcome back, team. We've got some calls. Let's take them. Uh, John in Delaware. John, good to have you. How you doing? I'm good. Thanks for calling in. Good, sir. First time caller. Um, I just wanted to touch on the whole Roy Moore thing real quick. Um, I mean... The guy hasn't been proven guilty of anything yet. He hasn't been in a court of law. There hasn't been a jury that came down with a verdict on the guy. It's all hearsay up until now. This other guy, Al Franken, admitted to all of his sexual harassment, abuses, and whatever else he did. And, and for them to play this now, and, and you said it exactly how it was going to happen. I believe it was a day before yesterday you called it. You said they were going to use this as a pivot point. To, to go against Don Trump and to go against Mr. Roy Moore, and that's exactly what they're doing. Thank you. I think and I was so correct on that one, yes. A hundred percent, Buck. And also, real quick, I don't mean to get off topic, but um, like I said, I listen to the radio pretty much nonstop because I, I can't really afford cable at this point in time, so I listen to nothing but talk radio. And uh, the more I listen, it's like, why are the, the liberals and the Democrats so big on bringing all these immigrants into the country? I mean, isn't it obvious that there's some sort of ulterior motive to get illegals in here and somehow get them to vote i mean otherwise why would they want to be bringing so many illegal immigrants into the country that are committing crimes and pretty much bringing a scourge if not anything to tourists well all right well john we're, we're going we're going way we, we've gone way off the uh, off the roy moore topic I, i've spoken i think at at some length in the past about the uh democrat the democrat uh plan to or the the reasons why they are favorable towards illegal immigration, and yeah, it's it's a huge power play for them. There's there are a lot of votes at stake, especially in amnesty and legalization, 
but look, when we talk about the criminal aspect of it, it's important to understand that, you know, if, if I'm if I don't want another million illegal immigrants to come into the country, let's say. Right. And right now there are uh, 11 million, 12 million. If I don't want another million legal immigrants to come in the country and, and I want to talk about how crime is part of the reason why I'm not saying that half or not you know or whatever i'm not saying that a huge proportion of those million illegal immigrants are necessarily going to be violent criminals at all it's going to be no matter what numbers you look at it's going to be a small number a vast majority of the illegal immigrants who come to the country aren't going to commit crimes that are violent in addition to the crimes of their illegality but i want to stop illegal immigrants from coming to the country for a whole bunch of other reasons and by the way, I don't want whatever the percentage of illegals are that commit crimes. I don't want that to be an issue for us either. Right. So it's there's all the economic reasons and, and all the and, and rule of law reasons for not wanting, let's say, another million illegal immigrants to come to the country. And oh, by the way, of that million, if, you know, I, I don't know what the numbers off the top of my head by percentages, but if, you know, 50,000 of them are going to be real problems in terms of criminality, I don't want that either. So it's not that we're saying that, oh, a million illegals means there's going to be, you know, there's going to be a million, a million illegal immigrants are going to all be criminals. But we want to stop illegal immigration because whatever criminality is a percentage of the illegals that come into your country, you don't want to be dealing with any of that. And then there's all the other issues about politics and, and everything else that's going on. So uh, Jimmy in North Carolina, good to have you on the show, sir. Thanks, Buck. Uh, shields high, brother. Shields high, sir. Thank you. I got a little action quote for you. Oh, all right. Here we go. Haven't had a lot of those today, so let's get this Let's get this party started. You ready? It's a little bit older than we are, so... Uh, oh, no. Oh, it, gosh. It starts out. Yeah. Yep, if if yep, everyone's carrying a six-shooter and riding a horse, I'm probably not going to get this, but go ahead. No, no. Uh, Bulldog. Puff the Magic Dragon's on the horn. This is Bulldog. This is Puff. Where do you want it? Put it on the base. Those people have it. We don't. It'll only take a minute. Oh, man. Hit the buzzer. Oh, it's the best ever. What is it? The Green Berets with John Wayne, brother. Uh, I've never seen it. Never seen oh, it. I know. I'm at, watch it. I, is, can I get that on Netflix? I don't even know. Like, is uh, that even? Do they even uh, make it anymore on VHS? How do I find it? You can well. You can get it on Amazon, but you have to pay for it. You know, John Wayne was a, a legend. <laughs> he was a legend. Hey, Jimmy, you got good taste, and you got me on Action Week Quote Friday. Give me another shot next Friday, all right? I'm going to get you back. I'm going to get it right. Thank you for calling in and Shields High. Uh, yeah. So uh, there we have. It. All right. Next hour, we've got some interesting stuff going on. I want to give you a quick roadmap for where we are going here in the Freedom Hut. We will have an expert on the show in. He's an expert in how people day-to-day should be prepared for uh, violence and how they can respond to it. Uh, so that'll be, he's a former military intelligence guy, very interesting book. He's going to talk to us about that. Um, we also will discuss some, holi- oh, I'll talk to you about the Palestinian riots, give you some sense of, beyond just the headlines, why I think they're rioting and what where the riots, where, where they come from, uh, ideologically speaking. And then also some thoughts about the holidays. A little less boozing going on at some of the uh, left-wing snowflake factories out there like Vox.com. So we'll have to uh, talk about why that is and what that means. And then also Team Buck Speaks, which is, I love doing that. It's fun to hear from all of you and read it on air at the end of the show. So we've got some good ones today. Pick some out. Stay with me for that and much more. 
Team, I often talk to you about how we want to avoid violence however and whenever possible. Talking about uh, taking action abroad with uh, military or just in your day-to-day life. You want to avoid violence, but you can't always. And in fact, there are times when violence is the answer. We have somebody on the phone right now who is an expert in this. Tim Larkin joins us now. He is a New York Times bestselling author who has a new book out called When Violence is the Answer, Learning How to Do What It Takes When Your Life is at Stake. Uh, Tim, thank you so much for joining. Hey, thanks for having me, Buck. So, Tim, I know you were a former military intelligence officer and you were part of a beta group that redesigned how special operations personnel trained for close combat. You have a a particular skill set that you have a very particular set of skills, pardon me, uh, if you will, uh, for this specific topic. How do you translate this to everyday folks? Really what I try to do is I try to make sure that people um, really understand the difference between what's avoidable and what's not avoidable. I think there's a lot of information that we have about how to avoid violence. Um, I think there's very little information of what to do when violence is completely unavoidable, you're devoid of choice, and you have to take action. And so I I try in the book to really outline those two areas because people make mistakes on both sides of the equation. Okay, so let me walk through some of the key points here with you in your book. Violence is a tool, okay, and what, what do you want people to know about that, that other than the obvious? Well, most people think of violence, and, you know, we stigmatize the term violence so much that uh, really the only people that have it available to them are the predator class, because we're told that if we look at violence, we somehow are criminal or we somehow are, you know, seeking to be violent people and, and nothing could be further from the truth. It's, um, it's really a life skill that everybody needs to learn, uh, you know, much akin to, you know, teaching your kids to swim, you know, so they don't drown. We all need to understand how to use the tool of violence. Um, just because we know how to use the tool doesn't make us criminal. You know, uh, it just, it just allows us to be able to protect ourselves effectively um, if we are devoid of choice. What should people look for? What are some of the key indicators in a day-to-day situation when one may be faced with violence. I know from some of the limited self-defense training that I've had, we've talked about things like if uh, if someone is, if an aggressor uh, squares off against you and, and their jaw clenches up suddenly, or, you know, you have to watch their hands. At some of, are, are there day-to-day things that you talk about in the book or that you can tell us about now that are helpful for keeping folks safe who may have to use violence to defend themselves? Yeah, I think probably for, uh, for most of my... Um my my, uh, my civilian clients, the, the big issue is um, understanding when, when it's just devoid of choice. What I mean by that is if you had an exit, you'd be able to take it. If you could talk your way out of the situation, you, could, you, you would have already done that. Um, what you're facing is you're facing no communication. This person is coming at you, and you are facing imminent grievous bodily harm. And the only thing that is going to change things in your favor in a situation like that is if you know how to use violence. And so the way most people train for that is they confuse themselves because they, they involve communication. They, uh, they try to, a lot of what you're talking about, you know, look for, you know, verbal cues and stuff. Really, it's very straightforward and simple. Um, if you have to ask yourself, gee, should I use violence right now? It's probably the wrong time. Uh, most people want to respond with violence in, like, say, something that's completely avoidable, something like a road rage situation or somebody makes an uh, offensive comment. And yet when people are, you know, literally facing imminent 
grievous bodily harm, that's when they want to communicate, and that's the worst time. That's when the predator uses your communication skills against you. We're speaking to Tim Larkin. He's a former military intelligence officer and author of When Violence is the Answer, Learning How to Do What It Takes When Your Life is at Stake. Uh, tell me about social aggression versus, uh, versus asocial violence. Social aggression is really what most of us kind of equate with violence. It's the obnoxious person, um, you know, at the restaurant or at the bar. It's the person that, you know, cuts you off on the road. Um, these are all social in nature, meaning there is some form of communication happening, even if it's completely unpleasant communication. There's still communication, and that is still an opportunity for you to exit out of the situation. Um, the majority of my clients, unfortunately, the reason I wrote the book is because 70% of the people that come and train with me, I would imagine most of your clients probably don't know my name, and that's a good thing because people that do know me are people that normally have had some sort of a violent act happen to them, and they come to me after the fact. And so by putting this information out, I'm trying to reach that you know, in my world, the 30% that haven't had violence happen and help them make better decisions. Tell me about the best lessons coming from the worst people in this, in this realm. Well, the, the interesting part is, you know, often I've had to say is, is you know, I had to go. Yeah, what I really found was in, in, in searching with this, I've worked a lot with the corrections officers and I got to study a lot about, um, you know, all the, the prison gangs and how they operate and how they use violence. And even though it's, it's, you know, we don't glorify these people. We certainly don't hold them up. There's a lot of good information. And I often say the best information comes from the worst people. Um, and the reason we look at these guys, and it's worthwhile to look at them, is because they live in a petri dish of asocial violence. You know, the prison systems are, are just completely asocial. Violence is a currency. So they look at violence very differently. They look at violence from the way an entrepreneur would look at cash flow. It, it has to work for them. They can't have opinions. They only get results. And so they're very specific about how they look at the human body and how they get results. And in the book, I'm able to walk people through and say, hey, listen, you know, these guys are very good at identifying, you know, the weak areas of the human body and how to exploit them. And that's extremely useful information for us if we're facing imminent grievous bodily harm. This is like when I used to work at the NYPD and I would always remark on how good those guys were at detecting lies because people lie to them all the time, and so they have to learn how to deal with it. So I guess in the prison system, you have to learn how to deal with violence. Uh, tell me a bit about, uh, Tim, your point here that one once you are faced with this and there is no option other than violence, you must intend to injure. Yeah, what I, what I do is I, I take people through and, and really define the idea of pain versus injury. You know, pain is really irrelevant to survival, meaning... People's pain tolerances are all over the place. Injury to the human body is where we are breaking a uh, sensory system or a structure of the human body so that it no longer works, at least as long as you're having engagement with the threat, with the person that, that you're against. So we look at things where objectively, if a doctor, if a, a doctor was holding up uh, some uh, film, he would look at it and say, I don't care whether or not this person feels this or not, that's not going to work anymore. And so it's a uh, decoration of function. The best information uh, where we look is that to the sports injury data, because sports injury data is where humans collide with humans and humans collide with the planet. And those are injuries that you and I can replicate. Um, and, and in that data, about 70 areas of the human body keep showing up time and time again. 
And, uh, you know, you don't need to know all 70 of them, but there are some really good highlights that we can, we can understand. And the main focus is you, you stop looking at the differences of somebody. So you look at somebody and originally you think, well, he's bigger, faster, and stronger. And by understanding this information, you say, oh, wait a minute, he has a throat like me, he has a knee like me, he has an ankle like me. Um, and that's the real difference. That's the way predators look at, 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 at uh, a threat. They'll sit there and see the similarities in human beings rather than the differences. And that mindset alone has really made a huge difference in clients that have had to unfortunately use the information to save their lives. Tim Larkin is a former military intelligence officer. He's a New York Times bestselling author, has a new book out, When Violence is the Answer, Learning How to Do What It Takes When Your Life is at Stake. Tim, thank you for your service, and thank you very much for your time today. We appreciate it. I appreciate sharing the message. Thank you, Buck. All right, absolutely. Uh, Team, we're going to roll into a quick break here. We will be right back. Violence in Gaza, and the Palestinians are, uh, are rioting. This is what we were told to expect, and it is happening because the Trump administration decided to finally stop delaying and move the U.S. Embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Let me just give you some of the details here about the riots and the violence as reported by the Washington Post. Israeli forces fired live ammunition Friday at Palestinian protesters who burned tires and threw stones near the border fence with Gaza, and Israeli jets responded to rocket fire with an airstrike in a sharp escalation of violence over President Trump's decision to recognize Jerusalem as Israel's capital. Two Palestinians were reported killed and hundreds injured. Uh, so uh, the, the biggest protests were in Gaza, in the Gaza Strip, which is a uh, very unfortunate and desperate place. It is in the hands and the, and the official control of Hamas, a terrorist organization. And they are marching in the streets about this. And I just have to wonder what they really think, what Palestinians think is accomplished by reacting in this way. Nothing really changes here other than a a concession that in the grand scheme of things is actually a very minor concession anyway. But the concession was that they would not put, that we did not put the embassy in Jerusalem because that was to be determined after we had reached a peace agreement. But there is no peace process that's going on right now worthy of the name. We have been completely stalled for years on that and really for decades now. And it is already U.S. policy as passed by Congress to move the embassy. So what is this really telling us? Unfortunately, a lot of the reaction to this move by remember, this is a U.S. move. This is the U. This is the United States government making this decision, and there are riots in well, in Gaza, which is not Israel, but there are riots uh, in the street, um, and there is violence now because there's such a an outrage about this. Um, Hamas has called upon its followers to mount a third intifada. Intifada means uprising. Um, the second intifada involved a lot of suicide bombings and horrific violence against civilians. And it was what changed Israeli public opinion about how security first, it became a security first issue that there was not going to be this uh, continued 
hoping for peace and suffering through bouts of extreme violence at the hands of uh, Palestinian hardliners. The Israelis were like, you know what, we just want security. We're not going to deal with this anymore. And now here we are. You have the movement of a building, a diplomatic facility, from one city to another, and the Palestinian response is with violence and uh, all of this outrage. And I have to tell you that this is, it hasn't even happened yet. So what are they really protesting? I mean, what is behind this Palestinian mentality? Uh, many years ago, actually, I studied at a program. It was through a Georgetown University's uh, graduate program in uh, international relations. And there were a lot of Palestinians and a lot of Israelis in my program. And I remember that it was a conflict resolution workshop over the course of a summer. And it was uh, eye-opening to see the way that they would debate and interact on these issues. Right? We were speaking about what to do about Arab-Israeli uh, peace and what to do about you know how, how to make this all come about. And it's really hard to discuss this as a topic. It's really hard to uh, get into this without understanding that hatred of Israelis, hatred of Jews, is taught in Palestinian schools and media. It is really an official policy in Palestinian society outside of Israel to despise the Jewish state and to have a tremendous hostility toward Jews. This is just, this is what I've, I've witnessed and I've been in Israel, I've been in the West Bank. It's very commonplace and it is deep-seated. And what you have is, on the one hand, Israel, which is a prosperous democracy with you know, rule of law, but I think in a day-to-day sense, it's just a much more, uh, it's a much better place to live, much higher quality of life than you have in the West Bank or the Gaza Strip. And I think there's a lot of resentment in Palestinian circles about that. And they're looking for someone to blame. And of course, they are blaming, not only do they resent the fact that Israelis have such a better standard of living than certainly uh, the Palestinians do in Gaza. Uh, but there's there's a blame shifting that goes on here or a, a blame game that goes on. And there's also, I think, a sense of uh, insecurity that it creates in Palestinians who are nearby. Why is their society so dysfunctional and, so, and their government so corrupt? Uh, and you start to look and you go below the surface on this and you'll see that you know, families of suicide bombers who have been interviewed and I actually uh, knew a young woman who did this as a, as a project. She went and interviewed the families of suicide bombers and the families are proud. You know, they, they, they think it's a great thing that their son or, or maybe even their daughter, but it's almost always sons, went in and blew up a whole bunch of innocent people you know, to, to stand up to the Israelis. It's a society, I mean, these Palestinian groups like Hamas and, and also just the, the whole exploitation of this issue by the Arab and really the Muslim world, it goes well beyond just the Arab world. It's all been so cynical and so destructive, and it's going to take a long time for that to heal. The problem right now for the Palestinians is that these Israelis, you know, they've got a a functioning, well, uh, relatively you know, well-off, per capita, doing just fine society and, and a country that is stable and that people would actually want to live in. 
And a lot of the neighboring countries are a mess. And people want answers for that, meaning the Palestinians and others. We know why is it a mess? And you know what they say? You know what they're they're fed as the line here. It's not that they should try to emulate the Israelis in any way. Oh, no, no. It's that the the problem is the Israelis, you know, whether you're in Egypt or you're in Gaza or you're in Jordan or you're in wherever. You know, the, the Israelis have caused so many of the problems, even in day to day life. You can't make this stuff up. I mean, there was a uh, not long ago. Well, maybe it was 10 or 15 years ago now. There was some uh, Egyptian cleric who blamed a shark attack in the Red Sea. I think it was on the Israelis. I mean, that's just a a bizarre and, and really comical version of this uh, this phenomenon. But the. The uh, hatred, let's call it what it is, that a lot of these Arab states and a lot of their citizens have for the Israelis is a, is a huge impediment to peace. And they've been fed lies by Hamas. They've been fed lies by these different extremist groups that Israel will not last. It's just a matter of time. And they will, you know, they will eventually take back Jerusalem, even in jihadist propaganda. There is a focus on Jerusalem. And a focus on conquest that will end in Jerusalem or an end of days war that will have as its focal point a battle over Jerusalem or in the environs of Jerusalem. I mean, this is this is really a fixation in uh, Islamist circles, and it's not something that they are willing to abandon. Uh, It's not something they're willing to give up, even though reality is that they should. Uh, they are not going to be able to take Jerusalem from the Israelis. But, you know, ultimately, that's been a big part of all this, that the Palestinians, anything that shows them what is all anything that reminds them of what is already true, which is that Jerusalem is the capital of Israel. It, it has been and will continue to be. Uh, they don't want to hear it. They don't want to see it. And they will act out as a result. If only the same energy could be put forward by the Palestinian Authority and Hamas to fix the areas under their control, uh, to improve the lives of the Palestinians who are, look, they are suffering. It's not, you don't want to live in any of these refugee camps. You don't want to live in some of these uh, parts of the West Bank that are cut off from, uh, you know, cut off from jobs and from any kind of real economic security or prosperity. But you know, the Israelis have figured out how to live their lives and live them well. And the Palestinians are still waiting for this either amazing deal to come along or in an even longer term, taking back all this land from Israel. And it's just hard for them to handle the reality. That that's not going to happen. That's really what a lot of these riots are about. All right, we'll be back. I'll talk to you. I'll share with you some early holiday thoughts and then we'll get into some team buck speak. Stay with me. Hey, team, I went to my first holiday party last night of the season, and yeah, it was really nice. I was there with some, uh, there were some friends, uh, actually a lot of, I think a vast majority of the people were uh, former military, some special operations folks, and I, I was just, we're having a good time, and it's the holidays coming up, and I like holiday parties. I think it's important that people come together and celebrate toward the end of the year. I think it sets a, a nice tone for the, the the coming year and I, I'm a fan right I'm not I don't like parades but I like parties so you can put that on my 
on my bio or on my Wikipedia page or something, which, by the way, my Wikipedia page says that I have celiac disease. I was surprised to see that. Somebody added that in there. Okay, true, it's fine, but just, hey, you know, also brushes his teeth twice a day. Uh, so anyway, I, I, I was at this holiday party, and I just had to, I had to kind of laugh because, it, you know, we're, it was open bar, and everybody was a complete uh, adult, and everybody was very uh, considerate and friendly to each other because we all kind of know each other. And I know that some of these media organizations are getting rid of the open bar that they have at the holiday party, which means some people are asking the question, this is what's being pushed around right now, did millennials kill the holiday party or are they killing the holiday party? Vox Media has decided, and Vox, you should understand, is is like progressive snowflake central. I mean, Vox, if someone's reading Vox a lot, they really do believe that there should be 37 genders or whatever it is. They, they, they're a true believer in the leftist insanity. And when you get to a point where Vox is abandoning the open bar at their Christmas, I should note a ton of, uh, I believe it's venture capital has been invested in Vox. It's one of these left-wing sites that, as if they need another left-wing news site, but a lot of money will go to it. Uh, and they are getting rid of the open bar because why not just ask people to be responsible and respectful of each other and have a nice holiday party instead of having to change the rules around adults being able to socialize once a year with alcohol present? I, I think that it sends an even weirder message in some ways, right? Look, if, if you just want to have a party... And uh, and and you don't want or rather, if you just don't want to have a party at all and you don't want anyone to serve alcohol because you don't want the possible risk or liability. All right, fine. That's kind of a bummer, though. But to have a party where there is no alcohol at all that will be served or maybe in this case, I guess it's just uh, it, it, it will not be open bar. OK, I'm sorry. It will not be open bar. So uh, there will be more food and they are cutting down the drinks. This I'm reading now the official statement. They'll be passed hors d'oeuvres to keep everyone fed. Oh, two, di- two drink tickets. Two drink tickets and then only non-alcoholic beverages. So they're, they're limiting everyone to two. I mean, all right, fine. I, 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 that's their right. It's, but, you know, come on. I just think that it would be better if we were all told everyone be an adult. Everyone be professional. If you can't conduct yourself well after a few drinks, don't have a few drinks. But we're just going to hold you responsible for your behavior Instead of, you know, some places they've got a two drink minimum at Vox. They've got a two drink max for the holiday party. Uh, Kind of a shame. So anyway, I hope you have got some great holiday parties coming up and I'll update you on all the ones that I go to as they come along because we should be festive this time of year. It should be a festive time of year for all of us. Um, And so there's that. And then there's another story that I just wanted to uh, put into things here. Yeah, anyway, uh, so so holiday parties, maybe not going to be what they would have been otherwise. But then there's another thing that happens this weekend here in New York. And I got to tell you, you're not missing much if you're not in town this weekend because they do this thing called SantaCon. And if you don't know, SantaCon, I don't know how it started. I don't really know much about the background of it. Uh, <laughs> but it means that a lot of people dress up in... Santa suits. It's a, it's a pub crawl. So everyone wears it. Well, the guys wear Santa suits 
and then a a lot of the ladies dress as Santa's little helpers. And it, since it is a pub crawl, things get uh, rowdy. And I can just tell you that I know I, this weekend, as I'm, whenever I decide that I'm going to venture out beyond my apartment, I have a feeling I'm going to be, I'm going to find myself walking around all of a sudden. Hey, Santa Claus is coming to town. I mean, you just have the the rowdiest, drunkest Santa Clauses you've ever seen in your life. Uh, it, it is. Pretty wild uh, how that goes off. And I've seen some things, too, where, like, all of a sudden a little helper will just be like, Santa, you're such a boop. You know, I really, what are you, boop? I mean, all of a sudden there's a lot of a lot of profanity coming from Santa's little helpers. You know, once you get around 4 or 5 o'clock in the uh, afternoon in the early evening and the, the pub crawl has been going on for a while, uh, things get a little sloppy. You know, there's no there's no reindeer around to take people home. Oh man, it's it's such a total and complete mess. Uh, I've seen, I've seen Santas. Let me tell you, it's a good thing that I don't have any kids because I've seen Santas and I wouldn't have to tell my kids. They'd be like, "That's not Santa." Like, look what he's doing. You know, Santa's on the corner, bleh, you know, throwing up and stuff. It's terrible. It's so gross. It is. You know, I'll say this because I have like fifty percent or so is Irish is is Irish heritage for me. So I feel like I could say this. It's like you take the worst part of St. Patty's day, which is people who are like, you know, I'm just going to drink my face off. Cause St. Patty's day. You take the worst part of St. Patty's day and you condense it into a, maybe an even shorter period of time with people who are all dressed in, in ill fitting Santa costumes. And, uh, the Santa's little helpers are sometimes not gonna lie. Those outfits can be a little bit on the, uh, little scantily clad side, especially if it gets cold out. But I don't know how this became a thing. Uh, I don't know how this became. I, I, thousands of them, by the way. I mean, I'm not talking about like 10 Santas. Tyrone's nodding. He knows. If you go into, it's mostly lower Manhattan or, or downtown Manhattan where this happens in New York City. But I think it's all over the place now, too. Uh, or there are other places in the city where it happens. I don't know if it happens outside of New York, but... You just get the most drunk, belligerent Santas. You know, they walk around like, you know, hey, kid, I'm not getting you any presents this year. There is no Santa Claus. You know, it's like, oh, my gosh, mommy. Like, why is Santa so mean? Santas, there are a lot of mean, drunk Santas that we walk around this weekend. I mean, some of them will be a little jolly. You know, some of them will be uh, friendly, I guess. But anyway, so this is what we'll be updating each other as we go along here, folks, on the the uh, holiday spirit, the holiday season, the good, the bad, and the drunken Santa. Uh I, I'm not, I don't, I, th- I should get a tree. Now I'm telling you guys, the tr- I, I haven't gotten a tree yet this season. I should do that. We've got some ornaments up and th- or some, uh, not ornaments, whatever you call them, little Christmassy stuff, but I should probably go all in and get an actual Christmas tree. So, all right. Note to self this weekend, Miss Molina, maybe we'll get like one of those little tiny trees, you know, it's not about uh, the size of the trees, but the size of the Christmas spirit. All right. We're going to do some team buck speaks. Stay with me. It's getting close to that time when I will uh, send you all off to enjoy your weekends, or if you're listening to me on delay on the podcast, uh, I suppose you're in the midst of enjoying your weekend. But nonetheless, uh, this is one of my favorite parts where I get to tell you how exciting my weekend is going to be. So far, I have planned some books to read, some podcast research to do, and maybe some adventures with the slow cooker. Although they've recently opened a 
this is going to sound like I'm giving up on my culinary exploits. They've opened one of these fast casual places near where I live where you just go and they give you greens, you know, sides, protein, and it's very tasty and it costs like 10 or 12 bucks and I just sometimes that's a lot easier than cooking. I know, I'm I'm getting lazy again. I'm becoming lazy about it. I was so excited to have a real kitchen for a while and I was making pulled pork and chicken white bean stew and all kinds of delicious stuff. And I even went and did the braised short ribs that I've been talking about for so long. Uh, but nonetheless, sometimes 10 bucks and a great meal that tastes home cooked and it's not. It's one of the big advantages of New York City. I'll just put it out there is that you can get pretty incredible food delivered so, yeah, this is telling you how exciting my weekend is going to be because there you go. It's going to involve Netflix and eating and reading and researching for the History Podcast, which will come out in January. So those of you who are live listeners to the show right now, please do go and download or I'm sorry, subscribe on iTunes. Uh, that's the best place. You can also go Google Play, though, and we will have the uh, podcasts up. First episode will be the hammer charles martel it's going to be very cool and i think you will all really really enjoy it with that let's get into team buck speaks remember facebook.com slash buck sexton's best way to get in touch with us here in the freedom hut or you can email at official team buck at gmail.com all right, let's get into it. Jeremy writes with the following. I think the reservations on Franken stepping down stem from the fact that he's an egomaniac more than a diehard party apparatchik. Uh, you know, Jeremy, I suppose it's possible because I don't believe that anybody can tell the future. I'm not going to say that there's no chance that Franken would refuse to step down. But as I was, as I see it, and this is my analysis, and I know others disagree, and they're free to do so, and they may very well be right, but as I see it, Franken didn't step down because he changed his mind. He stepped down because the Democrats were going to make him, and he knows that he can now be a free operator, in a sense, who will have lots of media contacts and friends and allies because he took one for the team. Whereas if he had stayed in against all pressure, he might have become a pariah. All right, Rita writes in, hey Buck, do you think that the Dems will go after Biden? Uh, Rita, do you mean, will the Dems go after him to run for the next election? Or do you mean they will try to punish him in some way? Um, I need a little more specificity in the question. I'm happy to respond, so just write me again. All right, now we have Daniel with our next one here. The Franken-Conyers Democrat narrative you predicted is already starting. This is from a syndicated newspaper political cartoonist. Uh, yeah, I know, Daniel. I'm, I was ahead on this one, and, and I think I was right. Uh, well, we're already seeing that, that my sense of this was right, that Democrats are going to use the Franken step down as a clean break and a clean slate from their uh, protecting philanderers and predators in the Democrat Party in the past. And I, and I say this, I know it's early, but you look at their bench and Kamala Harris is at the very top of their next likely presidential candidates. So is uh, Kirsten Gillibrand or Kristen Gillibrand, whatever it is. Uh, so is, is Gillibrand from New York. 
And so the war on women and the Republican war on women meme that's out there is going to become very important for Democrats. You, you just wait and see. Trust me, they're going to run with it. And unfortunately, I think it could be somewhat potent. I mean, you look and they were able to convince some segment of the voting population, at least back in 2012, when Romney and Obama were squaring off, that Romney was part of the war on women. As I keep saying, Romney is like a you know 60 year old Boy Scout. I mean, he's like Ned Flanders with deep pockets. It's just nonsense. He was trying to literally tell people that he wanted to hire more women. And that statement, binders full of women, became some kind of joke and meme and war on women thing. It was just nonsense. But look, Democrats run very, very dishonest political campaigns and have for, well, at least my entire adult life. So there we have it. Anyway, next up on Team Buck Speaks. Michael writes in, dude, Bitcoin deep dive now up 40% in 40 hours this week. I simply can't wrap my head around what is what it is and how it works. It has no intrinsic value, kind of like the U.S. dollar today. And there's no money in an account backing it. Um, and, and Michael, you did send the books to the Freedom Hut and we received them and we have them now. They're right next to me as I am on air. So thank you very much for that. Uh, appreciate it. Um, now, as to Bitcoin, look, I'm not holding off on our Bitcoin deep dive because I like to keep you all in suspense. This is really complicated stuff. And there are reasons to believe that Bitcoin is just a great thing. And there are reasons to believe that there is going to be a massive sell off and crash. And I, I don't know which is the case. You know, I, I don't know. Uh, and I'm trying to understand it more. And yeah, you raise, Michael, a very important point, which is that Bitcoin has no intrinsic value. That is true. The U.S. dollar has no intrinsic value. That is also true. Whenever people say Bitcoin is not a currency, I always want to turn around and say, well, a, a dollar is only a currency because the U.S. federal government, the Federal Reserve, says it is because the Treasury says it is. And that's an issue of confidence, really. It's not, as you know, not in any way pegged to gold anymore and hasn't been for a long time. And the the thing about gold is that there's always been some process and, uh, you know, there's always been some labor required to mine it and there's been some degree of scarcity with it. So as a measure of value, it isn't completely make it up as you go along. With Bitcoin, they have to spend... Uh, and now I'm getting into the Bitcoin deep dive that I've been holding off on. I, you know what, Michael? You, you're you're right. Next week, Bitcoin. We're going to do a Bitcoin deep dive next week, at least a solid a solid segment or two on this. And we'll get an expert on and we'll see if we can go from there. Um, but anyway, in, in short, a short version right now is that it requires computing power to create a Bitcoin. So it is like mining. It needs computing power and electricity. And right now, because so many people are trying to mine Bitcoins, my understanding is that you will actually uh, burn through more money in computers and electricity than you will make by the time you actually get a Bitcoin. Uh, they're also limited. And because of blockchain technology, it's very hard to fake because blockchain is a registry that isn't just on your computer or one server, or it is on every server that is involved, every computer that is involved in the registry. So it's like 
a book that everyone has a copy of and any change in the book is changed in every single copy that everyone has. Now that is a 60 second answer to what is one of the most fascinating and complicated uh, financial innovations and technological innovations uh, since the internet. So like I said, next week we'll get into this more and uh, I've got a lot of thoughts on this and the folks that I do work with at the Stansbury Investor Hour they're all over this and doing a lot of great work on that too. So if you haven't already, you can subscribe to the Stansbury Investor Hour. We go, we there are numerous episodes where we've gone into into Bitcoin in some detail. Uh, so those of you listening, please, that's also on iTunes. So with that, I'm going to say I am going to head uh, home, and I believe Miss Molly is making her famous. Uh, marinara zoodles tonight, which I know some of you are like zoodles, Buck. Why not noodles? Because I just want to eat more meat and I don't want to waste my caloric intake with uh, starchy carbs. So it's going to be zoodles tonight. Zoodles a la Mali for me. I'm excited about it. I'm going to put on the biggest pair of sweatpants I have and going to just chill this weekend. I hope you all can do the same. Thank you so much for joining me here on the show. Please do check out some of our wonderful sponsors. They make great gifts for the holidays, uh, Nine Line, Crate Club, and many others. So please do check them out. And it's a way of supporting the show as well as getting great gear. Until Monday, my friends, have a fantastic weekend. Shields high.